0: Welcome to Lompoc Foursquare Church's podcast. Enjoy the message. Uh, Let's pray. We're going to jump in to the second chapter of the book of Galatians. God, you are present with us this morning. So very grateful for your word that says, as we draw near to you, you draw near to us. Lord, as we walk together through your word, would you let it come to life in each and every heart and mind? God, would you help me to communicate the things that you've placed in my heart? But more importantly, would you let us hear what's on your heart to communicate to your church? In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last week, uh, we talked about the power of your God story. Your God story has three components your life before Jesus how you met Jesus, and what your life has looked like with Jesus. And I've been praying for you that God would give you both the opportunity and the courage to be able to tell someone your story. I'm going to continue to pray for you that way this week because, as you will see again in this part of the text, there is power in your story. So in chapter 1 of the book of Galatians, Paul tells his story, how he came to know Jesus, and then how he was sent by God to preach the gospel. Now, in chapter 2, Paul starts to lay out almost like this this legal case. He he wants to help the church understand that this challenge they're facing in Galatia is not new to the church of Jesus. As a matter of fact, he is having uh, an argument with people that he has already had once before. So he's going to take them back to an occasion in Antioch and in Jerusalem and tell the story of the last time, uh, he had to contend with people who were challenging the idea that we're saved by grace through faith rather than by work. So let me just walk down for you quickly the cast of characters that you're about to meet. So the first one, obviously, is Paul. Uh, we know Paul. We met him over the last couple of weeks, saved in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. He had been a Pharisee, had been a persecutor of the church, got radically saved and became an incredible missionary. Then you'll meet a guy named Barnabas. Now, Barnabas, his name means the encourager, and he's a very close friend of Paul. He met Paul when Paul got saved and tried to go meet the church in Jerusalem, and none of them would talk to him because they were all scared because they knew he'd been killing people in the church. But Barnabas was well-known by the church, so he kind of put his arm around Paul and said, let me introduce them to you. And then when the gospel message first made it to the Gentiles in Antioch, the people in Jerusalem, the head of the church, sent Barnabas to Antioch to begin to disciple the Gentiles. And while he was in Antioch, he sent for Paul. He said, Paul, I want you to come and help me teach the Gentiles how to follow Jesus. And then when Paul went on his first missionary journey, Barnabas accompanied them. So they have a really interesting relationship where in the beginning Barnabas was the mentor and Paul was the mentee. And over time, they kind of became peers, and then Paul kind of took the lead, and Barnabas became a support to him. We're going to meet a guy named Titus. Titus is a Gentile Christian from Galatia, excuse me, from Antioch. Uh, He worked with Paul. Now, there are other times where Paul brings people to the church in Jerusalem. Like He'll bring Timothy. Timothy was half Jewish, half Gentile. But Titus is completely Gentile. He has no Jewish ancestry at all. And Paul, thinking, I think, a little bit like a lawyer, brings Titus with him to Jerusalem as exhibit A, right? See, God is actually reaching the Gentiles through grace and not through the Jewish law. And then uh, he refers to the three pillars of the church. Uh, the three pillars of the church are Peter, John, John, and James. You know Peter from the Gospels, right? Peter's the guy that walked on water. Peter's the guy that cut an ear off in the garden. He's got some great stories. He's also the guy that denied Jesus and ran away, but then was restored at the end of the Gospel of John. The second guy is John, who wrote the Gospel of John. He has the best nickname in all of the Gospels, one that he gave himself. He refers to himself constantly as the one whom Jesus loved. Uh, I don't know if that's arrogance or confidence, but way to go, John. Uh, And then you're going to meet a guy named James. Now, now James is not the brother of John. Uh, James is the brother of Jesus. James doesn't figure into any of the Gospels because he didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God. He just thought he was his punk brother. Uh, But in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appears to James the same way he appeared to Paul. James then goes on to lead the church in Jerusalem. He writes the book of James. And as you read his writing, you come to understand he's very Jewish in his thinking. Uh, So this is one of the people that Paul is going to present the idea that God has reached the Gentiles. And then you have this other group that Paul refers to as the false believers. Um, Another translation calls them false brothers. Another translation calls them spies. These are Jewish men who followed Paul on his missionary journey. And whenever he would come to a synagogue, teach the gospel, and establish a church, they would come along right behind him pretending to be Christians, they would infiltrate the church, one, to learn what they are being taught, and two, to correct Paul's teaching and tell them, no, you must, in fact, be Jewish to be saved. You have to be circumcised. And to be circumcised in the Jewish community meant you have to practice all of the Old Testament law. This is why Paul is writing the letter to the church in Galatians. This is not the first place this has happened. This actually comes up every single place Paul goes. So Paul, in the beginning of the second chapter of Galatians, is telling the backstory. He's saying, guys, this is not my first rodeo. Uh, I've had this conversation before. I've fought this fight before. And I want to explain to you how I received the affirmation of our leaders in Jerusalem. So in in Acts chapter 15, it, it begins to tell the story of Paul and Barnabas returning to Antioch from their first missionary journey. And they're pumped. They're just so excited because they've seen God do outrageous things. And these Jewish legalists came from Jerusalem to Antioch, just as they later came to Galatia, teaching them that, again, they have to be Jewish in order to be saved. Now, Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 15 have a public confrontation with them. It's a good old Old Testament in the New Testament throwdown. Like, Paul is hot. Whenever you start challenging how someone is going to come to Christ and creating a burden for them, the same way Jesus would get mad at the Pharisees, Paul gets mad at these Pharisees coming down and teaching a false doctrine. So he and Barnabas get in a fairly public fight with these guys, and then Paul probably has this aha moment, right? The best place to settle this argument is not a throwdown in the middle of the church in Antioch. Why don't we go to Jerusalem... And we'll present our case to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. So, Paul and Barnabas and Titus and others travel from Antioch up to Jerusalem to represent the Gentile Christians who've been saved apart from the law, just simply saved by grace. Okay? So, we got the backstory. You up to speed? You ready? All right, here we go. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. After 14 years, this is Paul talking, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks. I love the language he uses. Had infiltrated our ranks in order to spy on the freedom we have in Christ and to make us slaves. There's not a whole lot of, I wonder what Paul really thinks about this. We didn't give in to them for a moment, he says, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who are held in high esteem, he's talking about the pillars, James, John, and Peter. Whatever they are makes no difference to me. God doesn't show favoritism. But they added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, or the Jews. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, that's Peter, that's just his name in Greek, and John, Those esteemed as pillars gave me the right hand of fellowship uh, when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. Now, there's a lot in just those 10 verses, so we're going to do what we did last week. We're going to break it down into manageable sections and talk about what's happening there. So verses 1 and 2. After 14 years, Paul says, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running my race in vain. So it says after 14 years. So this is 14 years after Paul got saved, tried to go to Jerusalem the first time, and they said, heck no, you can't come in because you want to kill us. So he'd had three years studying. Remember, he went back kind of into Arabia, and then 11 years ministering in other churches. And he says this. He says, I went in response to a revelation. God told me to go to Jerusalem. Remember, he's thinking a little bit like a lawyer. He's saying, I wasn't summoned there. There was never at any point in time the suggestion from Jerusalem that I was doing something wrong. I wasn't being called on the carpet. This wasn't correction. This is going to be a conversation. I chose to go. One of the things I love about Paul's willingness to go is you and I, as people of faith, sometimes have to step into hard conversations for the sake of health or the sake of unity or the sake of someone else. This is what Paul is doing. Paul could have said, I'm Paul, dang it. And I know what I know what I know. I'm going to stay in Galatia, and the rest of you can just do your thing. But he is willing to step outside of his comfort and engage in a hard conversation. Jesus teaches us in Matthew 18, when you need to have a hard conversation, there are a number of ways that you can go about it. He says, first of all, go to the person with whom you've fallen out and have a conversation with them. And if that doesn't work, and it hasn't worked for Paul, Then you can involve two or three or maybe even more people in the conversation. So the one-on-one clearly hasn't worked. The, The argument in front of the church hasn't worked. So Paul has said, in accordance with Jesus' teaching, we are not going to sweep this under the rug. We're not going to pretend it's okay. This is important enough that we need to talk about it. But I'm going to exercise some wisdom and discernment, and I'm going to go to other believers, people who are held in high regard, to help me have this conversation. Conflict by itself isn't bad, and it's not wrong. It can be, can it not, very uncomfortable. But if we have it the way Jesus invites us to have it, if we engage in hard conversations the way Paul is about to, it brings us to a place of health and unity. So two things stand out to me about this particular part of the passage. One is that Paul believed in the core of his being that he was right you will find in every gospel every excuse me epistle he writes he is beating the same drum he is hammering the same nail we are saved by grace it's what jesus did for us and not by works however he was willing to humble himself before these other leaders and open himself up to correction paul did not allow his rightness or his pride to become an obstacle that would compromise the unity of the church or the preaching of the gospel. So he goes to Jerusalem and he says, here's what I think, here's what I did, and I'm open to correction. John, where do you get that he's open to correction? I presented my gospel to the apostles in the hope that I had not or was not running my race in vain. I laid it out before them and allowed them to speak back to me what they saw a teachable spirit is a powerful and a unifying tool. We are often going to come to, to places where we do not see things quite the same way. But if we can approach the conversations about hard things with a spirit of humility and being willing to learn from one another, it won't divide. It will actually bring us closer together. We talked about Paul's backstory last week. Paul was an extremely well-educated man. Peter, we know, was a fisherman. James, growing up in his dad's house, was likely a builder. But Paul was the one who was an expert in all things having to do with religion. But he didn't allow his experience, his education, or his resume to become a point of pride. He could have demanded that they, they, he could have walked in and said, listen, this is what I've said, and I need you to tell everybody I'm right. Have you ever entered into a conversation like that? Oh, good, you're here to mediate? Well, here's what they did that ticked me off, and now I need you to tell Boy, couples coming in for counseling, we don't do counseling, we do marriage coaching, but very often they will come in, and and the expectation is I'm going to tell pastor what my spouse did, and then pastor is going to tell my spouse why they were wrong and how right I am. Don't look surprised, you've all done it. I've done it. You would not believe what Wendy said. Well, Wendy sounds pretty smart. That's not what I came here for. He could have stood up in the church and made a public spectacle of the whole thing. Hey, we're here. We're here from Antioch, and we want you guys all to come. But he didn't. He met with them privately, committed to the good of the church rather than his own reputation. He submitted his teaching to them, and because he came, I think, in a spirit of humility, and it helps that he was right. They did affirm his message. Here's what Scripture says about humility, which is my very favorite thing. Not. Humbling yourself before someone else is not the most fun thing you will ever do. But let me tell you what Scripture says about humility. It says, humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Why? That he may lift you up in due time. And he goes on to say, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Humble yourself before the Lord's mighty hand. When you and I are humbling ourselves in an attempt to honor a person or honor the Lord, that is a place of safety because we are humbling ourselves not under his hand of discipline, but his hand of protection. And when we humble ourselves beneath the Lord's mighty hand, he says we do it that he may lift us up in due time time. Humility invites God to work on your behalf. Humility allows God to work on my behalf. This is why Scripture says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What's grace? Grace is God working in me to do what I can't do on my own. So when I humble myself before the Lord, when I humble myself before you in an act of deference or love or worship to the Lord, I am protected by his mighty hand, and it opens the door for his grace to work through me, to do something I can't do on my own. This is why humility is so important. You can choose to fight for position. You can choose to fight to be right. But the other half of that verse says that God opposes, another translation says, resists the proud. So if I am operating in a spirit of pride, not only am I closing myself off to a work of God in me, God is actually kind of going, all right, John, knock yourself out. Go, no, go ahead. No, you're, you're doing really good. Just keep pushing. Just keep pushing. Just keep pushing. Not because God doesn't love me. But because God wants me to come to the place where I'm exhausted by trying to live in my own pride, I come to a place of humility that he might then lift me up. Drag it with me? Okay. So Paul just kind of went, here you go. And he said, I wanted to make sure I wasn't running my race in vain. Now, Paul was pretty clear that he was right, and yet he was teachable. He was open to submit his understanding of what God what God was doing, and what God was saying to other people. Church, it is very important to have other voices speaking into our lives, especially the voices of people who see things differently than we do. Otherwise, we are living in an echo chamber where we only hear back what we ourselves are saying. You it with me? If you are married to someone who sees the world different than you do, and if you are married, you are by definition married to someone who sees the world different than you do. That is actually a gift from God if you will come to the place where in humility and in love you will listen to one another. We, we need people who will speak truth to us in love, even if it's truth that we don't want to hear. And the second we become closed off to the possibility of correction, we're in trouble. So, Paul said, I'm just going to ask you. So, I I read that and I say, Man, let's not be embarrassed to have questions. I think there might be some things that we don't fully understand about Jesus. There might be some things that he wants to teach us, some things that we want to grow in. And so, if somebody asks me a question and I don't have the answer, I've got this great response I don't know. We should probably ask somebody. Well, you're the pastor, you're supposed to know. I'm not sure that that's in my job description. I think the Holy Spirit's supposed to know. I I believe God gives wisdom to those who ask without finding fault. But there are things that I don't fully understand. There are things that I don't know. There is a reason I am still posturing myself before the Lord as a learner. And so if we have questions, if there are things that we are uncertain about, can we be a church family that isn't embarrassed about it? Like, we can just go, hey, I don't really fully understand this. What do you think? And can we also be a people that if someone asks us a question, don't look at them and go, I can't believe you don't know the answer to that question. How dumb are you? Can we just, is it fair to say we're not going to be those people? I didn't get a yes from everybody, but I'm going to assume a yes from everybody. Here's the thing about me. I usually think I'm right. 99.9% of the time, I think I'm right. This is why we have a church council. We have a group of men and women who are unafraid to look at me and go, Pastor, I don't think you're right. And then we have a conversation. It keeps us healthy. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 3. So then Paul says, not even Titus, remember he's the Gentile, not even Titus who was with me was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ and to make us slaves. And to make us slaves. Can we just sit there for just a second? You either trust in God for your salvation, Paul says here, you either receive a work of grace from heaven in you, or you become a slave. You're a slave to your own attempts to earn God's favor. You either live unequivocally in the grace and mercy of God, or you are in bondage trying to earn your way to his favor. Verse 5, we didn't give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Last week, the power of your story. I told you your story is powerful and your, your story is important. And God will use your story to bring things to light that other people might not see. This is why Titus is included in the group. Paul is basically going, and now Titus, tell them your God story. And Titus would say, I'm not Jewish, and I'm born again, and Jesus loves me. And we know from from the latter part of his life where Paul would send him as a troubleshooter to churches that the grace of God and the fruit of the Spirit were evident, and the gifts of the Spirit were evident in his life as well. But he had never been compelled to be circumcised. He was well and truly fully circumcised a Gentile. And so if the Judaizers who were saying you had to follow the law were right, then Titus wasn't saved. And so Paul not only came forward to the church leaders and says, here's my understanding of how the gospel works, but he said, and here's how it worked in Titus. That's his story. Paul saying through Titus, salvation works apart from the law. Then Acts 15 tells us the rest of the story. Peter then gets up and tells his story, how God had chosen him to take the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, this Roman dude named Cornelius. Um, Peter had struggled with this a bit, like he didn't want to go, but God kind of broke through, changed his mind and changed his heart. And then the Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 the same way he had fallen upon the Jews. Meaning what? Meaning that God was creating one family out of very different people. This is a hard lesson for the church to learn because for for centuries there had been this very, very clear divide. And when Jesus came, this this is Paul's understanding of the gospel. It's a Jewish idea of the Messiah who was to come. The Messiah was not just going to deal with their slavery and bring freedom. When the Messiah came, he was going to make one family, one people out of many. It was always going to be a unifying work of restoration. That's why Ephesians 2.11 says, Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews, who were proud of their circumcision, even though it only affected their bodies and not their hearts. But now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He he united Jews and Gentiles into one people, when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Being united with Christ means being united with his people. He made one family, one group out of many. Every word used to describe the people of God, the church, in Scripture, whether it's body, family, temple, or priesthood, they all carry the idea of unity, not sameness, but unity. Wendy and I are very different. We see the world quite differently very often, and I know it's going to be a shock. It's going to rattle your faith. We don't always agree. However, we are united. We are joined together through a covenant and committed to approach one another in love even when we don't degre- agree. To walk, too often people walk away from relationships when they come to disagreement. And when we walk out of a relationship, when we come to disagreement, Scripture would say we are actually compromising. Hear me saying this, this is really important. When we walk out of relationship with other Christians because of a disagreement. We are actually compromising a work of the Spirit of God. John, where do you get that? Thank you for asking. Psalm 133 in the NIV says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured out on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, on the collar of his robe, It's as if the dew of Hermon was falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. This was written by a Jew, and here's what a Jew knew about what he was describing. He says, when God's people live together in unity, it's like oil, the oil that dripped down on Aaron's beard. Aaron was the high priest. The oil was an anointing oil. He is saying when God's people are unified, there is an anointing from God that comes to rest in that place that leads, he goes on to say, to life evermore. We would say to eternal life. So there is an anointing that is present when God's people are are walking in unity that leads to salvation, which means wherever there is disunity, a work of the Spirit is being resisted. That's why one of the things we talked about last week is when we come into disagreement We don't talk about somebody, we talk to somebody. Paul was deeply concerned that the church that he loved in the region of Galatia was becoming divided. So point one is to correct theology, point two is to bring them back to a place of unity. So when we come to disagreement, we talk, we listen, we receive the counsel of others, and then we come to clarity and move forward. Paul says he was committed to this conversation in Jerusalem for the good of others, not his own reputation. For Paul, being right wasn't about winning. He had this conversation in private. If his conversation was about winning, he would have had it in public. It was about protecting, he would say to the Galatians, you and your place in God's family. Verse 6. We doing okay? Still with me? All right. Verse 6. Verse 6. As for those who were held in high esteem, so then he's, he's talking about the big three, right? James, John, and Peter. Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God doesn't show favoritism. But they added nothing to my message. God doesn't show favoritism. He, what is he saying? He's saying there's no hierarchy in God's family. Paul will, will call himself an apostle in one breath and a slave or a servant of the church in the next breath. He's saying, listen, it doesn't matter how long you've known Jesus, what you look like, what gender you are, what language you speak, what your job is, how much you do or don't give to the church, whether you're homeless or live in a mansion. We are all equal members of God's family. Again, he is speaking of unity. What that means is any partiality that we show one another in church is a byproduct of our brokenness, not God's spirit. You with me? Any partiality we show, people walk in, you're like, oh, that's my people, but that's not my people. Like, I'm going to go talk to him because he's wearing the right jersey. I know, that's me. Super guilty. This is just a moment of confession, right? Josh, I love you even with your love of the angels. You are still my people. If we are categorizing people in our church family, and it's easy to do, that's a matter to bring to Jesus and repent of. And what does repent mean? It means to change your mind means to turn around. We are conditioned culturally and socially to see differences and respond to those differences. But as the body of Christ, we aren't meant to be governed by culture. We're meant to be governed by Jesus. You with me? We're not governed by culture. We're governed by Jesus. That's what it means when we pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's what it means to be a citizen of heaven. And when Paul says they added nothing to my message, that's not Paul being a jerk. That's just Paul saying in lawyer speak, and they all agreed with me. At the end of the day, we were on the same page. On the contrary, they recognized, verse 7, that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. And James, Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace upon me. So what did the Jerusalem council conclude? That people are saved by grace and not by works. And they concluded that Peter had been called to minister to the Jews and that Paul had been called to minister to the Gentiles. That's not a matter of division. That's just a matter of assignment. Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles. Peter, though he started with the Gentiles, becomes an apostle to the Jews. He says the same God working through Peter to reach the Jews, is working through Paul to reach the Gentiles, and Jesus is saving all of them the same way, by grace, through faith. Each of them, in language that we've used earlier, is doing the good works that God prepared for them in advance to do. Sometimes different people have different assignments, and sometimes those different assignments are in different locations, and they change. But it's not a sign that God is loving one and not loving the other. The The fact that God sent me and Wendy from Washington to Lompoc doesn't mean that God no longer loves Washingtonians. may have mean they needed a break, um, but it didn't mean that God doesn't love them. It simply means the place of our assignment has changed. Strategic placement, we've covered that together. So James says Peter's going to go to the Jews and Paul to the Gentiles, and then, then he wraps up with this. He says, verse 10, He says, they they agreed I was going to go to the Gentiles. Peter was going to go to the Jews. We're all preaching the same message. All they asked, verse 10, was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. What did they say? Keep preaching the grace of God to all you can wherever you go and care for the needs of others as well. James is saying to both Peter and to Paul, listen, minister to the spirit and to the body. Because when God's kingdom is present, where it's being expressed in advance, it causes people to thrive. If we believe the right thing, but we don't do the right thing, we're missing the mark. What I love about reading the Gospels is wherever Jesus went, he preached a good word. I mean, he could bring it. But he also met whatever need was present. Everywhere Jesus went, the communities got better. Our communities should always be better whenever we are present. I would summarize Paul's statement in this phrase. Correct doctrine is never a substitute for Christian duty. Correct doctrine, believing correctly, is never a substitute for Christian duty. Another way to say that is orthodoxy does not supersede orthopraxy. Believing the right thing doesn't free us from doing the right thing. Our ministry should be with our words and with our hands and our feet. One last thing, and I'm going to close with this. When, when you read this same story in Acts chapter 15, there's one more thing that James actually says beyond um, uh, ministering to the, the poor. And Peter doesn't include it here because it doesn't really matter with Jew or Gentile. It's not part of the circumcision conversation. But James writes to the Gentile church these words. Acts 15, 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and for us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. Abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Why would James ask Gentiles to do these things that were really at the core of the Jewish faith. Verse 21 that I didn't read, James says, we know that there are sons of Moses, sons of Abraham, there are Jews in every city to which you go. And these things were deeply offensive to them. Being a Christian meant claiming that in Christ, the law and the prophets were fulfilled. So Paul is saying, so in your freedom and in your liberty, Don't offer a needless slap in the face to your Jewish neighbors, whether they're Christian or not. Keep away from pagan temples and everything that goes on in them. Eating meat sacrificed to idols, drinking blood, temple prostitutes. You and I can go, well, duh, John, those all sound like horrible ideas. In pagan culture, in Gentile culture, they were very, very common. And Paul is saying to the Gentiles who have just heard... We're right. We don't have to become Jewish. Paul says, don't let your freedom, don't let your liberty become a stumbling block that keeps other people from coming to Jesus. Celebrate your freedom. Live in your freedom. Don't go shove your freedom in someone else's face. If for, I was trying to like, what, what might this look like in our context? If I got invited to preach in a Baptist church, I'm not going to go preach on speaking in tongues. Do I believe in speaking in tongues? Absolutely. Do I practice speaking in tongues? Yes, I do. Is that going to create heartache for them? Yeah. So just Paul's saying, like, just be smart. Be loving. Be kind to those around you. Don't let your freedom become a stumbling block to other people. with me you guys doing great you doing okay going through this almost verse by verse we haven't talked like this before but I just I love the way the word kind of comes alive to me when I do it so sorry here we go we hope you enjoyed today's message please visit us at mylfc.com for more information about our church thank you so much for listening